searching truth. And then I think there is, I'll just call it a, a secondary truth, a secondary application for our lives today. And so two points that I want to hang our thoughts on and meditate on for the next few minutes. And the first one is this, God rules the kingdom of men. God rules the kingdom of men. Without a presidential election taking place, I wouldn't be surprised if many of you missed the fact that this past week was an election week. A week where, once again, the democratic uh, process was on full display. As we like to call it, the, the power of the people. The will of the people, and depending on who you talk to after the results of Tuesday's election, depending upon what their presuppositions are, it was either a, a big week for Democrats and a sign of things to come, or it was simply a wake-up call for those who are currently in power. I'm not here to talk about politics this morning. This isn't the place to talk about politics this morning. I'm not interested in doing so. Because you see, this passage rises above all the power that we think we as the people in this nation, that we think we possess. And in other contexts, as last week we focused on the persecuted church and many who are living in contexts of brutal dictatorship, this passage rises above the powerlessness that, -ness that they feel in their national governments and in their situations. And instead, the underlining statement of this account is stated in chapter 2, verse 21. Daniel's words of praise to Yahweh he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. You see, Daniel, when he wrote this account, Daniel didn't have bold font. He didn't have italicized words or the ability to underline. No, if Daniel wanted to represent or, or emphasize something in his writing... He had to repeat it. And so at the end of verse 17, we read that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And at the end of verse 25, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And then in a verse we haven't read yet, verse 32, again he says to Nebuchadnezzar, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. God rules the kingdom of men. Daniel knows this, and in one sense this truth has already been communicated to Nebuchadnezzar in his first dream, which happened years and years ago. Remember the dream, the statue, the stone which came and rolled at the statue and took out the legs of the statue and it crumbled all of his kingdom would be gone. As Nebuchadnezzar internalized that, 
it was all future for him, right? And so while he paid some, some lip service to Daniel and to Daniel's God and to Daniel's abilities, he didn't really believe that God rules the kingdom of men. Even though that's where that first dream was kind of pointing him towards. Because remember, nine years after that, he sets up a statue to his glory. And he calls all the nations to come and, and worship it. You see, apparently Nebuchadnezzar is hard-headed, like so many of us. Apparently he needs to experience what God is saying, not just hear it. But let it sink in to his life. And that is what chapter 4 is all about. And Nebuchadnezzar will never, he can never be the same. And we know this right off the bat. Because you see verses 1 through 3 that we began reading this morning. Verses 1 through 3. Before we ever learn what he went through, this is his conclusion to the matter. This is his declaration of Yahweh's dominion. And notice who he's calling, who he's declaring this to, is the same group that he called decades ago to come worship this 90-foot statue to his glory. And he's saying, folks, something happened to me. The Most High God rules. And let me tell you how I got there. You see, Nebuchadnezzar is not just now saying, this is, this is Daniel's and his friend's God. No, this is the Most High God. Let me tell you what the Most High God has done in my life. And then he goes on and he says, I had a dream. I had a dream and this time it was not a statue, it was a tree. It was a huge tree. It was strong and, and tall and it was beautiful and it was fruitful and it was a shelter and it was a provision for so many animals, for so many creatures. And then there was a pronouncement from a holy one, a watcher. Now that's a curious descriptor, a watcher. That's the only time we see this word in the Old Testament. And what we think it is, is it's coming from the, the Babylonian belief that certain heavenly beings were tasked with particular oversight over particular realms. And so this watcher, this holy one, pronounced that this tree, this beautiful tree, must be destroyed. It must be bound with a band so that it will not grow. And then in verse 15, do you notice the shift that happens in verse 15? The shift from it, a description of the tree, to he. Suddenly the tree is a person, one who will be wet with dew. Because this person will be sleeping outside in the cold nights. He will eat the food of animals and he will begin to think like one as well. Now I'm no dream expert. We've talked about the mystery of dreams. But think about this. Are, are we really to believe that all of the magicians, that all of the astrologers, 
especially in light of the first dream and Daniel's knowledge of that and his interpretation of that, which obviously became part of oral tradition and became known to all of Nebuchadnezzar's guys. Are you telling me that these guys couldn't figure out when they heard this dream from Nebuchadnezzar, they couldn't figure out what it meant? You see, I, I think it's possible, I think it's very possible that his men knew, Nebuchadnezzar's astrologers and knew, but they dare not say Because when Daniel's called in, what's his first response? In verse 19, he is dismayed. He is alarmed. Why? Because this is terrible news for the most powerful man on the planet at this time. Nebuchadnezzar, I got good news and I got bad news. The good news is you're the tree. That awesome, prosperous tree. The bad news is You're the tree, that awesome, prosperous tree, which is going to be cut down and flattened. And there's a purpose behind all of this, Daniel says. You need to recognize, verse 26, that heaven rules. Heaven rules you. God rules the kingdom of men. Now, I know that we have talked about this some weeks ago when we rejoiced in the fact that, that light is coming, that the stone uh, in the dream of Nebuchadnezzar's statue, that the stone is rolling, that the mountain is growing, God's kingdom is expanding. But even, even when we meditated on that, even when we thought about that, so much of that was still future, wasn't it? Sure, it comes into our present, and I tried to make that point, but so much of it is what God was going to do, not what he is doing now. And yet here we're drawn to the now. The Bible doesn't call us to hold our breath until that final glorious day, but instead live every day as responsible, active citizens in the confidence that God is dealing with the nations. You see, as a prosperous, secure nation with sane leaders, this doesn't strike us with the same force that it strikes that home church huddled in a basement right now in the nation of Syria. It doesn't strike us with the same force that it struck The original hearers in Daniel's day, exiled and weeping along the banks of the Babylon and by the willows. Nevertheless, this is a message for us. Because I know how easily we can lose sight. I know how easily we can be prone to to live in fear, to live as orphans, and to forget that God rules the kingdom of men. And this is not just a message, I don't think, for, for us globally. It's not just that God rules globally, but if God is big enough to rule globally, He is certainly big enough to rule locally 
regionally. And if he's big enough to rule there, he is certainly big enough to rule personally. And and maybe that's what some of you need to be reminded of this very morning. You get that God is big. You get that God turns the hearts of kings and rulers. But you doubt that in those personal moments in your life, that he is intimate enough to care. Well, I proclaim to you this morning that the God of the Bible is both. He sets up kings and he numbers the hairs on your head. God rules the kingdom of men and he feeds the sparrows every morning. Isn't that amazing? Don't let your hearts be shaken by world events, by the news, or by your own personal circumstances. God rules the kingdom of men. That's the first point. As we jump back into the story, Daniel's interpretation is followed by unsolicited but needed counsel. Verse 27, what does he say? He says, show mercy, Nebuchadnezzar. Become a man of justice. Essentially, he calls Nebuchadnezzar to repent and to believe and to be changed. It reminds us of another prophet's words, Micah 6, 8. He has shown you what is good and what the Lord requires of you. To do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. If you do this, Daniel says, Nebuchadnezzar, Perhaps, I don't know the will of God, but perhaps your prosperity will be lengthened and God will have mercy. And so we fast forward. We fast forward 12 months and we come to verse 28. Chapter 4, verse 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, He was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is this not the great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. You will be driven from among men. Your dwelling shall be the beast of the field. You shall be made to eat like, eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High. I praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? 
the same time, my reason returned to me, and for, my, for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom. Still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble The second truth, the secondary truth of this passage is not just that God rules the kingdom of men, but that God will humble the proud. God will humble the proud. Think back on your life for a moment. How did you get to where you are today? Hard work? I hope so. What else? What else besides hard work? Let me give you a a couple motivational quotes for your day. Pump you up. Maybe they resonate with your experience. If you can dream it, you can do it. If you can dream it, you can do it. Spoken by the wise sage Walt Disney. How about this one? There will be obstacles, there will be doubters, there will be mistakes, but with hard work... There are no limits. Spoken by the most decorated Olympian of all time, Michael Phelps. I read those quotes and I I say, really? If I can dream it, really? No limits? Now, I'm not passing judgment on Michael Phelps. I love Michael Phelps. I love watching him win. Medal after medal after medal. I like Mickey Mouse. Walt Disney, thanks for Mickey Mouse. I'm not casting judgment on the hearts of these men, but I'm picking on their words and the context behind them. You see, Walt Disney didn't just dream and it happened. Walt Disney was born to a stable family in Chicago in the most prosperous nation in the world. He was educated as a young boy and got the opportunity to become a commercial illustrator, which made him the man that he became. Michael Phelps didn't just work hard. Yes, he worked hard. But he too was born in suburban Baltimore to a stable family with every opportunity before him. Not just that, but Michael Phelps has incredibly long arms that create incredible propulsion. He's got a shorter than normal torso that creates less drag in the water. And did you know his feet are double jointed? He wears size 14. He's got flippers on the bottom of his body. Yes, these men worked hard, no doubt about it, but the God-given advantages that they were born with, that were set before them, things that they had nothing to do with, are the reason why they're quotable. A couple years back, we had a seminar led by Sylvia of Everett Gospel Mission. Many of you were there in the front room. And I don't know if you remember the exercise that she made us do. We all went out to the parking lot. We all started in a line. And she started listing off things in our lives, advantages, things we had nothing to do with, but things that set us apart from the homeless men and women 
on the streets of our city. Things like a stable home, two stable parents, education. I remember that. That that exercise stuck with me because I was close to the front of the line. See, the point is that Nebuchadnezzar was under the illusion that Babylon, this sprawling, beautiful conquest, was him. It was all him. Verse 30, I built this, my mighty power for the glory of my majesty. And through these words, Nebuchadnezzar reveals the state of his heart. And the temptation that has plagued humanity from the beginning of time. Pride. Pride. We know better. We are better. We are all that we need. It's been a problem from the get-go. And God had warned his people about this in Deuteronomy 8. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the power of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth. And we hear verses like that and we think, well, is this God on some egotistical power trip himself? No. God doesn't need your strokes. But being God, there is no greater glory than himself. And he knows that humility in us, when pride is squashed, it produces in us things that he embodies as God, things like kindness, compassion, patience, and ultimately justice. And so God brings Nebuchadnezzar to his knees in what we would call a severe mercy. A severe mercy. He loses it all. He loses his mind. He goes crazy for a time. And finally, the Lord releases his grip from him, and he gets it. Nebuchadnezzar finally sees his belly button. Your belly button. I heard this phrase in a theologian, from a theologian once, belly button theology. What do you see when you look at your belly button? What does your belly button communicate to you? It communicates that you didn't create yourself. It communicates that you were once utterly dependent upon another, and that's what that scar represents. And you still are utterly dependent. Let me rattle off some reminders from God's Word. Isaiah 66, 2, all these things my hand has made, so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite and trembles at my word. Proverbs 11.2, when pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. Proverbs 29.23, one's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will attain honor. 1 Peter 5.6, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that the proper time he may exalt you. We all, like Nebuchadnezzar, 
must come to that place where we recognize, where we learn that all that we are, that all that we have, that all that we have accomplished is not simply because of us. And I know, because I'm one of you, I know that intellectually we get that. We know that. We would confess that. But do we live like it? Or are we stealing God's glory by our lack of prayer? (laughs) By our lack of gratitude? Are we prideful by our harshness with others? Especially those who are under us. Especially those who criticize us. Does your pride rear its ugly head as you express impatience with those who don't know how to drive? That one was for me. For my heart. Just ask my kids. Brothers and sisters, I don't want God to have to humble me, to have to bring me low in order for me to understand, in order for me to get it. Where does pride begin to die? Noticing your belly button, sure. Recognizing the beating of your heart and the fact that you do nothing to keep that going, yes. But beyond that, it begins at the cross of Jesus. The cross that we've sung about, the cross that we've heard about, where the ruler of man humbled himself to the point of death for proud hearts like yours and proud hearts like mine. And this is a reminder for us this morning that God is not interested in self-made men and women. He's interested in those brought low, that he might exalt them. And so take your eyes off of your accomplishments. Take your eyes off of comparing yourself with others and look to Christ. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. The message this morning, brothers and sisters, is praise God that he rules the kingdom of men and praise God that he brings the proud low. May we live as those ruled and those humbled. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you this morning for your word. Father, I confess my need to have the mind of my Savior, to have the heart of Jesus, to be humble, to recognize that all that I am, that all that I have, is from you, and to you it all belongs, the glory, the praise, the gratitude. 
Oh, Holy Spirit, do your work in us this day, planting this truth deep in our hearts in unique, individual ways. Do that in your people for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen.